0: In a slap seen and heard by millions around the world, actor Will Smith assaulted comedian Chris Rock at the 2022 Oscars after Rock told a joke about Smith's wife, actress Jada Pinkett Smith's bald head. Jada suffers from alopecia, which is a hair loss condition which has been attributed to autoimmune disease, stress, hormonal changes, hereditary genes, and other factors. While a very ugly and unfortunate incident What was interesting to me was the justification used to defend these two well-liked celebrities, and people quickly divided into two camps, Team Will Smith and Team Chris Rock. Those defending Will Smith said that he was caught up in his emotions to defend his wife, having seen firsthand how alopecia affected his wife negatively, a struggle she has publicly shared about on social media. They said that Chris Rock crossed the line when he joked about someone else's medical condition if he knew about it. Those defending Chris Rock, on the other hand, said that everyone knows that comedians make fun of people, especially public personalities like Will and Jada at events like the Academy Awards, and that Will even laughed at Rock's joke until he saw his wife's unamused face. Some even noted that it was a mild joke compared to the jokes told about Will and Jada's marriage at the beginning of the telecast by the women hosts. Most everyone agrees that regardless of the joke and what was said, violence is never how you deal with hurtful words. Who was right and who was wrong? Was it justified or was it not? The fact that so many saw the same incident but came out with different conclusions and perspectives show that our world often filters truth based on one's perception bias, experience, likability of someone, and even identification with someone else's experience. You see, apart from God's clear rules or principles about what is right and wrong, right and wrong is subjective. Wrongs can be justified to be right, and everyone has a say on the matter where the majority opinion is right. As we finish our study in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis… I want to draw out three biblical principles for how God operates to give us guidelines for how we, as Christians, are to assess certain things in life from God's perspective and not from the subjective and frankly, wrong perspective of the world. Hopefully, understanding and accepting these biblical principles as it relates to prosperity, success and plans will help us live more Christ-like lives. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Genesis as we study chapters 10 and 11 and conclude our sermon series, When Giants Walk the Earth. I read now chapter 10, verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. We're told in verse 1 that this chapter's purpose is to record the descendants of Noah's three sons. However, we don't have time to go through the names recorded in this chapter in detail. But I want to point out that in verses 2 to 5, the descendants of Japheth are mentioned in this table of nations. Generally, the descendants of Japheth settled in the area north, east, and west of the Ararat mountains. Verses 8 to 20 trace the descendants of Ham who generally settled east, south, and southwest of the Ararat mountains in the area of Mesopotamia, the Arabian Peninsula, northern Africa, and the land of Canaan. Verse 21 to the end of the chapter trace the descendants of Shem, who generally settled in the regions northeast and southeast of the Canaanites. The tribes and nations mentioned in this chapter were based on their importance in relation to the nation of Israel as their near and far neighbors. Some of these nations, although far away, would interact with Israel in the eschatological future. For example, in Ezekiel 38, it references the descendants of Japheth in verses 2 and 3 attacking Israel in the future. We won't go through each of the names listed in chapter 10, but I do want to point your attention to one of Ham's descendants mentioned in verses 8 to 12. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the principal city. In a stylistic break from the listing of the various tribal names, The scriptures highlight this person called Nimrod, whose name literally means, we shall rebel. He is described in the Bible as a mighty warrior who founded several powerful cities and kingdoms in the region of Mesopotamia. Some scholars have identified him with Sargon of Akkad, also known as Sargon the Great who was the first ruler of the Akkadian Empire and often identified as the first person in recorded history to rule over an empire. The Akkadian Empire covered the Mesopotamian region, which the later Assyrian and Babylonian empires would occupy. In fact, the Assyrian and Babylonian kings who based their empires in Mesopotamia saw themselves as the heirs of Sargon's empire. Historically, the powerful cities that Nimrod founded were enemies of Israel throughout their history, and many of these cities became the center of pagan worship of many false gods and deities, like the land of Shinar, which is Babylonia, with the capital being Babel or Babylon. Regardless of who Nimrod was historically, we see that even in his rebellious nature against the one true God, He was allowed to succeed as a mighty warrior and build powerful cities and great kingdoms. And this begs the question, why does God allow rebellious, wicked, sinful people to succeed like Nimrod? Unfortunately, we don't have an answer to this question from this chapter. But it is important to note that while God allowed Nimrod to succeed, it was only temporary success because we don't see these nations existing today. Each of these nations have seen their demise historically, and any future manifestation of these nations will see a future destruction prophetically, according to the Bible. We have the benefit of history to see that Nimrod's powerful cities and kingdoms were really not that successful or prosperous because they were unable to sustain their prosperity into the future. You see, God doesn't measure success and prosperity like we do. True success only comes if it is sustainable and eternal. Temporary prosperity is not success. That's why we need to understand that ours and others' present worldly success and material prosperity is only temporary. It doesn't necessarily mean that God's hand of blessing and approval is with you or with them. You and I can't boast that God's favor is with us and that you are doing the right things in the eyes of God simply because of your present blessings. For even those who do evil and wicked things temporarily succeed and prosper. And that's the first biblical principle I want us to understand. Biblical principle number one, material prosperity and worldly success do not mean God's approval and blessings are with you. Material prosperity and worldly success do not mean God's approval and blessings are with you. This principle serves as both a warning and an encouragement to followers of Jesus Christ. In terms of encouragement, just because someone has nice cars, a large house, an outwardly beautiful family on social media, a luxury pool, new phones, the latest gadgets, and other things you and I associate with success— does not mean they have God's approval and ultimate blessings. It just simply means they are monetarily rich, but those earthly things are temporary. You can't take them with you when we die. It is only heavenly rewards that last forever. That's why Jesus reminds us of this fact in Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 21. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And where thieves break it and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break it and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My friends, don't envy those with temporary material prosperity and short lived worldly success. You and I have something better. We have eternal life and eternal rewards as followers of Jesus Christ who are called to faithfully do his work. Are those eternal things enough to satisfy you in your life? Are you satisfied and content knowing you have eternal life and eternal rewards? Joseph Heller, the author of Catch-22, once was at a party in the Hamptons, a very affluent area on Long Island for New York City residents. A guy came over to him and pointed to a young 25-year-old standing in the party who worked for a big hedge fund. Heller's friend said to him, see that guy over there? He's made more money last year than you'll ever make with all of your books combined. Joseph Heller said, maybe so, but I have one thing that man will never have. His friend was skeptical. Oh yeah? What is it? Heller replied, enough. The one thing that that man will never have is enough. My friends, can you ever get to that point in your life What you can say for certain, you have enough. I hope you can, or else as a warning, it may lead you to a destructive and discontented life. Examine your hearts and see if you crave and seek material prosperity and worldly success to a point where you're willing to break apart your family, disregard your friends, give up your character, ruin your reputation, compromise your integrity, and most importantly, ignore your relationship with Jesus. Do you seek these temporary worldly things to give you a status symbol to brag and boast about? Because while nice to temporarily have, it will not bring about satisfaction and comfort in your hearts because God's blessings and approval don't automatically come with it. As Richard Swenson writes, contentment is when we tell the shepherd that his provision is enough for all our physical and material needs. If our old car hobbles down the road, that's fine. If we get a shiny newer car with less issues, that too is fine because it's not about the cars. My contentment is unaltered in any circumstance because the shepherd is the source of my provision and he does all things well. Contentment is when we tell the shepherd that his presence is sufficient for all our emotional needs. We seek solutions for our emptiness in many directions all of them lacking. But those who go deep with Jesus discover He is always better. The greater our intimacy with Christ, the greater our contentment. However, sadly, instead of looking to Jesus for our contentment, we see successful people and say, God must be with them, and we envy them. Successful people themselves would say God's approval is on their lives because of their success. But this thinking would be a myth. And those who think like this would be fooling themselves because the thrust and focus of their lives is on the temporary, the material things, and self-serving glory. And God never approves of this type of living. Now let's take a look at the last verse of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. Let me just note something here, lest you think there may be a contradiction in the Bible. The chapters in the Bible aren't always sequential or chronological, as we saw in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where chapter 2 went back and revealed more about what happened in chapter 1. Here, chapters 10 and 11 do not follow chronologically because the events in chapter 11 occur before chapter 10 but it's placed after for narrative purposes to contrast man's sin in chapter 11 with the promised hope in chapter 12. Now, the Bible tells us in verse 1 of chapter 11 that the entire world had just one common spoken language. There was no issue of people not understanding each other because of foreign languages. Of course, this made doing things easier and more efficient, and there was great human achievement and progress during this time. But look at what happened in verses 2 to 4. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." The Bible tells us a group of people traveled east and found a place in the area of Babylon or modern-day Iraq near the lower Euphrates River and settled there. They proposed in verse 4 to build a city with a very high tower that would reach into the heavens. This tower structure would most likely have been a ziggurat, which is similar to a pyramid, but instead of smooth sides, it had steps, ramps, or terraces with its sides usually receding. Ziggurats were multi-leveled structures that had seven layers or levels to represent the seven traditional planets. Unlike the pyramids of Egypt, which were burial places, Sumerian and Babylonian ziggurats were built to house the gods. So this tower being built most likely had religious and pagan purposes and also served as a memorial and a landmark to the greatness of the city and the people who built it. Now, let's stop here and ask a question, is there anything wrong with urban planning, expanding a city, building tall structures, and settling down? And the answer is no. But the Bible tells us in this case, there were two things that were wrong with what they were doing. First, their attitude was wrong. It was one of pride and boasting. They wanted, as the Bible tells us in verse 4, to make a name for themselves instead of doing it for God's glory or to help others for His glory's sake. Their only concern was to build up their reputation and fame. Perhaps they wanted everyone around them to marvel at the works of their hands and their architectural achievements. The second thing wrong with what they were doing was that instead of obeying God's command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, which was given in chapter 9, they didn't want to spread out as God had specifically commanded. In willful disobedience, they clearly did not want to be scattered across the earth They wanted to settle in this spot and did not want to do as God had commanded. They declared with their action they were going to build this city and this tower so that they can provide security and stability for themselves, regardless of what God wanted and commanded. Perhaps the implication is that they did not need the one true God telling them what to do. They did not need the one true God to protect them. They said to themselves, we have these pagan gods we worship, and they will protect us, and we will build for them a home, this ziggurat tower. What was wrong with this urban construction project was that they were committing the sins of pride and willful disobedience. But without knowing the declaration in their hearts as revealed in verse 4, these sins would be unknown to us as they were concealed by a seemingly noble endeavor and an admirable desire for growth, expansion, with great plans and achievements. Most everyone would have been in awe and marveled and applauded what was happening and what they were doing. But there was one who was not applauding, for he was not in agreement with this project, and it was God. For he saw into the hearts of these men and women And hidden behind the awe-inspiring project was a heart of pride and willful disobedience. This is where we get our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. Man's great plans and achievements often conceal a prideful and disobedient heart. Man's great plans and achievements often conceal a prideful and disobedient heart. We see this play out today where the ends justify the means As long as great plans are envisioned and wonderful achievements are reached, then who cares about the heart of those who are doing it? We don't care about the motives, the attitudes, and the true intentions. So many purpose in their hearts to build up their empire and do wonderful things so people will love them and everyone will respect them. But instead of doing it for the right reasons, it's only an ego trip to build up their name and their legacy the people at Babel didn't even try to hide their intentions. They did it so that they could make a name for themselves, the Bible tells us. It wasn't so that this city would be a help to humanity or to serve as a place of refuge for weary travelers. It was self-serving. It was built for themselves, done in direct opposition to God. Pastor Charles Stanley once recounted years ago, While I was on a business trip, I found myself talking with a leader of a large Christian organization. We were together for a short period of time, and after a few minutes, he smiled and said, Charles, we're at the top of our game. No one is doing what we have done. We are the leader, and I don't think anyone can catch us. Immediately, my heart sank, not because I wanted to be number one, but because I could sense God saying, don't ever let that idea cross your mind. At that moment, it felt as though the Lord had sent an arrow straight into my heart. I knew exactly what He was saying to me. "Pride brings destruction, and it does not belong in the life of a believer, at least not the kind of pride that lifts self up and fails to glorify and honor God." Perhaps this man did not recognize what he had said, or it may have been that God wanted to send a word of caution to me, regardless. Pride can and does explode God's plan for our lives. Many times we begin our Christian walk well. Our focus is set on God, and our hearts are fully committed to Him. Then without warning, pride begins to rise up, preventing us from being all God wants us to be by blinding us to His ways. It tempts us to believe that we know better than He does. If left unchecked, pride will alter our attitude toward God and the route He has chosen for us to take. That's why in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23, Solomon writes, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. There is an end result to pride, one we usually want to ignore. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 and 19 says this, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Why do I bring up this matter about great things hiding our heart's true intentions? Because as Christians, we often justify disobeying God or justify the pride we feel by proclaiming that we have achieved or are achieving great things for the Lord. We intentionally hide or unintentionally suppress our pride and disobedient heart under the guise of great plans and achievements and even justify it as being done for the Lord. So we justify acquiring many things, bigger things, more numerically, as a cover for a heart of pride and disobedience. We say, Lord, I give a lot to Christian ministries. Lord, I pastor a megachurch. Lord, I lead an influential organization where I even started a Bible study for my employees. So you should be happy with those things. So don't nitpick in some areas of my undealt with sin. But this would be the wrong thinking. Remember, my friends, God doesn't call us to do great things for Him. God calls us to live faithfully. God simply wants us to be faithful to that which He has called us to do in the Bible. You may think that your name, wealth, achievements, status, Family, position, or whatever else you pridefully boast about is gonna bring you and God glory. But he will reject those things if your life is not right before him. He is looking first and foremost for faithfulness and obedience in his people. You know, I used to have a similar life philosophy, thinking that as long as I achieved great things in life and gave God some acknowledgement, he would be happy and I can do what I wanted to do. Early on in high school, I felt strongly that God was calling me to be a pastor. Every time a pastor at church or a speaker at a conference gave an invitation to those who felt led to serve as a pastor, I wanted to raise my hand to acknowledge the Spirit's prompting in my heart, but I never raised my hands. I didn't want to be a pastor because I didn't want to be poor. I didn't want to be looked down upon. I didn't want the hardship of the pastorate because I knew firsthand the hardships of being a pastor growing up in a pastor's family. It was pride in my heart that said being a pastor was beneath me, beneath my skill levels and my intellect. So I went into the world of corporate America, earning quite a lot and moving quickly up the corporate ladder to justify the disobedience in my heart and to make me feel good. I simply told the Lord, Lord, I'm going to give money to the church and to mission work. The more I make, the more I'll give. You should be happy with that. To conceal the pride in my heart, I said that as I climbed the corporate ladder, I would be able to hobnob with the elites and would be able to share the gospel with them, which I never did. That's how I justified to myself and my friends and family why I worked so hard. But truth be told, it was for my own ego and my own self-interest. I just sprinkled in there some spirituality and some spiritual words. All of it was simply a big cover-up for a prideful and disobedient heart that simply did not want to submit to God's clear calling in my life to be a pastor. My friends, until we recognize this truth about our hearts and deal with it, we will never come clean with ourselves and with God. We will continue to live a lie, a big cover-up, perhaps fooling our friends and family. But we will never fool God, for He sees into our hearts, and our great plans and achievements will all be for naught, for God humbles the proud. Remember what happened to Moses in Numbers chapter 20? In his pride, Moses, who was one of Israel's greatest leaders and led them out of slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, lost his temper and was kept from entering the promised land all because of pride. Pride kept Joshua, who had just led the people to cross the mighty Jordan River and to a great victory in Jericho from seeking God's will at Ai, as recounted in Joshua chapter 7. And he lost the battle and incurred God's discipline. King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's greatest leader with absolute power, allowed his pride to get the better of him and turned him into an animal according to Daniel chapter 4. Peter's pride, saying he would never deny Christ and would be willing to go to prison and even suffer death for Christ, led to his denial of Christ at the courtyard of high priest Caiaphas in Luke chapter 22. Be careful that great plans and achievements don't conceal a prideful and disobedient heart which will lead to your downfall. Now look with me at verses 5 and 6. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. The Bible tells us the Lord took notice of what these people were doing and realized that if He allowed them to continue building the city and the large tower, greater evil would come to pass. So God would do through judgment what they would not do in disobedience and scatter them so that they would fill the entire world. It wasn't that God was afraid of mankind that He intervened, but He did so because He would accomplish His purpose for His glory in spite of man's selfish and prideful plans. God was going to show Himself sovereign. Look at what He does in verses 7 to 9. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. That they may not understand one another's speech so the lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city therefore its name is called babel because there the lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth the bible tells us god invented different languages for them and because they were no longer able to communicate and understand each other they were no longer able to work on this building project. Dr. Eugene Merrill and other biblical scholars believe that this judgment also involved the implantation of ethnic and racial distinctions, which the Table of Nations in chapter 10 seemed to imply. This scattering marks the beginning of various ethnicities and races as people stayed within their language groups to marry and have children, thereby limiting the genetic variances and enhancing dominant genetic traits like skin color from which ethnic characteristics develop. This scattering because of differing languages is why I believe many cultures have similar stories as Genesis in their mythologies, especially about a flood destroying the world because there wasn't a long period of time between the great flood and the incident at the Tower of Babel. In chapter 10, verse 25, we read, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. I believe the division of the earth referenced in this verse refers to the scattering of the people because of languages. If this was so, then it was only four to five generations from Noah to Peleg. And remember, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. That means that the people who built the tower presumably would have heard the flood story firsthand from the eyewitness accounts of Noah, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. But since those who were scattered lived in willful disobedience and pride against the one true God, they would have changed what they knew to be the true origin story to their version of the origin story of mankind. Which included many similarities to the account in Genesis chapters 1 to 11, including a great flood, replacing Yahweh with their pagan deity. That's why there's a great flood story as part of mythologies in Mesopotamia, Islam, Hinduism, the Chinese culture, Greek, Norse, Irish, Polynesian, Mesoamerican, Native American, South American, African, and Aboriginal tribes in Australia. But the Bible's account is not one of many myths. It is the original true account from which the other cultures' mythologies derive their stories from the Tower of Babel. Just look at the pictorial language of the Chinese language. I don't think it's a coincidence that the character, for example, of boat is made up of three other characters, vessel plus eight plus mouth, literally eight mouths or eight people in a vessel in a boat. And there are many other Chinese words whose character composition aligns with what took place in Genesis. And I encourage you to study this fascinating subject matter to bolster your faith in the Bible. You can simply Google the Bible in Chinese characters. And so the place was called Babel, which is a play on a similar-sounding Hebrew verb meaning confused. These people were confused because they could not understand each other as languages were introduced. Naturally, the people of Babel sorted themselves out by language groups, and they scattered themselves across the earth because their language distinctions would have caused trust issues with those they could not understand, accomplishing God's purpose in spite of man's selfish plans. The wonderful thing is that in the future, the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 9, tells us that we will all speak one language while maintaining our various languages. So the Bible tells us in the millennium, we will speak the same language. But putting it all together, we have our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. God often sovereignly intervenes to overrule man's selfish plans to accomplish his purposes for his glory. God often sovereignly intervenes to overrule man's selfish plans to accomplish his purposes for his glory. My friends, this truth encourages us because we can find peace knowing that man's plans will never override God's sovereign will. He can choose to intervene to accomplish His purpose, so we should not lose heart if we think that things in our life isn't going as we have planned it. As long as we remain faithful to Him, God's perfect, beautiful, and satisfying will will take place in our lives. This simple but profound truth should encourage us to leave things in God's hands to allow Him to sovereignly move and intervene, especially when things are beyond our control. If you're a student of history, you will see that God often intervenes to accomplish His purpose for His glory. Genevieve Carlton writes Can a single change of fate shape history? And is there proof of divine intervention in history? Sometimes a change of fate is so unbelievable it seems like it must have been divinely inspired. During the Hundred Years' War, King Edward thought he had France on the run until a freak hailstorm destroyed his army in just 30 minutes. George Washington thought his continental army would follow the British in 1776 until a fog rolled in at the last minute, allowing the army to escape. The Mongols thought they could conquer Japan, until a typhoon completely destroyed their invading armada, not once, but twice. At the time, many interpreted these changes of fate as evidence of historical divine intervention. A Dutch admiral complained that God must be Spanish since he froze a river to let Spain's army escape. When Poland's king saved Vienna from Ottoman conquest with a surprise cavalry charge, he declared, I came and God conquered and the American revolutionaries declared that Providence saved their army from British destruction. These moments of divine intervention changed the course of history, and Scripture is full of verses and historical reminders of this truth. My friends, this truth should remind us that we should never work for our own selfish plans because it's a futile effort. We should seek God's will for our lives to accomplish His purpose for His glory. So that means whatever is happening to us we can be reminded that it is God sovereignly working it out for our best, even if we can't seem to understand what's going on. Again, it has never been about us fully understanding. It's about us trusting in a God whose actions are based on His unconditional love and abundant grace. That's what we see when God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. Man's selfish plan was to try to save themselves and in Jesus' time to get rid of the Messiah. But God intervened to overrule man's plan to accomplish His purpose, which was to give all humanity eternal life and allow those who place their trust in Him to have salvation and bring glory to His name. With this in mind, we need to guard our hearts from becoming bitter when our plans don't go as planned. It simply means God is overruling what we want in order to bring about something better for His purpose, for His glory, which is for our best. Don't be bitter when God's better plan is for our best. Don't be bitter when God's better plan for us is for our best. Remember the line from the wonderful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. As someone once wrote, in this world you will face many hardships, but you can keep your heart from becoming cold and hard. There's a story of a physically challenged high school student. Although the crutches on which he hobbled kept him from being physically active, he excelled in his studies and was well-liked by his peers. They saw the problems he had getting around, and they sometimes felt sorry for him. But for a long time, nobody asked him why he had this difficulty walking. One day, however, his closest friend finally asked, Why do you have trouble walking? The student answered, it's because of polio. His friend replied, with so many difficulties, how do you keep from becoming bitter? Tapping his chest with his hand, the young man replied with a smile, oh, the polio touched my legs, but it never touched my heart. It touched my legs, but it never touched my heart. My friends, don't let the disappointment of your unfulfilled plans touch your heart for our hearts should be fully trusting in God's loving and gracious, sovereign purpose. Don't be bitter when God's better plan is for our best. The rest of this chapter traces the descendants of Shem all the way to Abraham, and his story starts in chapter 12. We end our series here, but I pray you will continue your study in the rest of this wonderful book as it traces the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph with many life lessons for us to learn. As we live our Christian lives, remember that our prosperity, success, and plans are not to be subjectively defined by the world based on bias, perception, expectation, and majority desire, but it should be defined by the principles and truth that God has set. Remember, number one, material prosperity and worldly success do not mean God's approval and blessings are with you. Number two, man's great plans and achievements often conceal a prideful and disobedient heart. Number three, God often sovereignly intervenes to overrule man's selfish plans to accomplish his purposes for his glory. So my friends, live faithfully according to God's word, checking your hearts to ensure it is right before God so you and I can live for His purpose and His glory. And in this way, you and I will find great success in this life and the next. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we don't have to rely on the world's definition of what is success and accomplishment, that we can look to You, the author and the finisher of our faith, to see that it is what is eternal that is true success. Father, I pray that those who have not placed their trust in You as their personal Savior would do so, and those who have done so would live for Your glory by living faithfully doing what Your Word has told us to do. Help us to examine our hearts, that our hearts are tender and not bitter, that our hearts do not seek for our own selfish plans, but seek for Your greater glory. Father, would You continue to bless Your people as we look into Your Word for guidance in all things. We love You, Lord thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.